This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Marissa Govern, a documentary and commercial editor living in New York City. She has worked on such titles as Jane Fonda in Five Acts for HBO and Lennox Hill for Netflix, but otherwise counts herself as a movie enthusiast, part-time song and dance man, and friend to all house pets. Marissa, welcome to the show slash our joint sickbed. Hi, Danny. Happy to be here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, not happy about the state that we're in, but happy to be here nonetheless. What state are you in? Uh, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, temporally? Well, let's see. Physically, um, I have a stomach bug at the moment. So not great. I had to actually come home from work, from working in the office, uh, and come home and sit down and watch a bunch of Abbott Elementary instead of doing work. That's an excellent, excellent decision. Uh, I've been enjoying that show very much. Yeah, I know. It's quite good. And I also, I like the idea of from now on opening this show with just a discussion of everyone's low-grade ailments. It's <laughs> <Just> like, what's, <laughs> We're all what's, going what's bothering you? Yeah, but like, it's got to be low-grade, but it's got to all require some sort of like tending and puttering. Um, I hope that that works. <laughs> I, as, as you know, am, am, uh, am rising from my own sickbed. I just tested negative uh, last night for the first time for COVID after a nine-day bout where uh, I was uh, bed-bound and doing nothing but listening to Steve Allen books on tape. Brilliant. <laughs> it was amazing because I had forgotten how outrageously, uh, like, just for sheer output, you couldn't beat him. Like he would, if he had a thought, it became a book or a song or a TV show. Like at no point was there ever a barrier to publishing with Steve Allen. So like there is an immense, immense uh, like grade of quality when it comes to Steve Allen's output, where I think some of it is, you know, as good as it is uh, cracked up to be. And some of it is just like, you know, he made a bet with a friend that he couldn't write 500 songs in a month or something. It's like, well, they sound like 500 songs that he wrote on a deadline. Um, <laughs> but there's also something kind of remarkable about that. I don't know. I, I came out of it feeling both like a little bit enamored with him and a little bit resentful, um, which seems seems like a good place to be vis-a-vis Steve Allen. Via V, Steve Allen? Vis-a-vis. Yeah, sure. How no. do you say the phrase via V, vis-a-vis? I say V to V, I think. Okay. <laughs> Except now that you question me, I'm suddenly wondering it myself. <laughs> I I also don't know. But I will tell you that one of the things that it also inspired me to start doing was like every night as I was feverishly trying to fall asleep, I was just writing down one-liners. Like I was Steve Allen and I was going to have to host like the 1950s era Tonight Show. And <laughs> they are similarly, some have really made me chuckle and some feel absolutely deranged. Um, so I have... Uh, Beef jerky is great for when you want to take the wet out of meat. <laughs> and then also, I'm working on a memoir. It's based on my experiences. Well, it's based on experiences. Um, and, and, and more of the same. Lots, lots more of the same. Which is, um, now I wish that I was on the Steve Allen show 60 years ago. 
I know. For a few days, uh, mentally, you'll have to forgive me because uh, for most of this conversation, I was trying to piece together who exactly Steve Allen is. He was, you know, <laughs> one of the sort of like original. You know, there's like a there's a whole thing about like who really started the Tonight Show and like who really started all the different like dumb little uh, like you know answer man that eventually became Karnak the Magnificent like gags and you know there's a lot of like it was Jack Parr it was Steve Allen it was you know the executive who's running NBC at the time it wasn't Steve Allen Steve Allen just takes credit for everything and um, you know I I love those kind of like you know that mid-century transition from like radio shows to like talk shows where just nobody heard the word no like if you were a white guy working at a radio station in those days and you were just like I got some ideas and I think I can fill airtime. They're just like, absolutely. Here's a three-year contract. And so you just had really banana stuff coming up at the same time. That was how I learned that like, you know, uh, Minister Farrakhan first came up on the old like Major Bose Amateur Hour and released a novelty Calypso single about Christine Jorgensen. And at that point, I was just like, I, I can't tell if I have COVID or the world is COVID and this is a fever and reality is a hallucination. Like I just, I had to turn my brain off when I got to that point. So anything, uh, anything to segue us out of this sort of mid-century fever dream that I'm still trapped in, I think would be useful. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sounds good. Would you mind reading our first letter so we can get away from my own soup brain? <laughs> Absolutely. So subject is pending void. I am a 13-something somewhere in Scandinavia, pronouns uncertain. I have been in five relationships in my life. All of them I sort of quote-unquote fell into after we had been friends for a while, never intentionally sought out. Most of them ended badly after a few months. I want to blame that on my being undiagnosed autistic slash ADHD back then, but my close friends assured me that the problem lies with my partners. My fourth relationship lasted a year and we parted on good terms. My fifth relationship, it turns out we were only in love because of a serotonin enhancing drug we took together on a weekly basis. After that, I decided I should not be in a relationship until I could take care of myself. Because how could I be a good partner if I couldn't take care of myself? couldn't love myself. That was in late 2012, and I still tell myself that. But recently, I have started to ponder if it has become a mantra, so I never let anyone in again. A lot of my problem solving and other issues is just to never do anything. Nothing gained, nothing lost. I learned a lot from my past relationships, especially what I don't want in a partner. Looking back, I can clearly see that I adapt way too much to the person I'm with. How do I know I'm not just making up excuses to never be hurt by love again? I need your help once again, because I think I heard something, but I might have been hallucinating. It sounded to me like when you read the first line, you said a 13-something, but it's 30-something. It Did you say 13-something? 30 something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I might have genuinely made that up in my own head. I just wanted to make sure that we knew that the line was 30-something. Frankly, anything could be coming out of my mouth at this point. Great. Well, so long as we're clear that this 30-year-old is not talking about a bunch of relationships from when they were three. No, it's clear now. I Either it didn't happen and I just took us on a very strange segue, or it did happen and I fixed it. So either way, we're great. Okay, good. <laughs> Do you have any, um, you know, sort of first order thoughts when it comes to these questions? Yeah, you know, when I first took a step back from this question, I 
kind of noticed that we're spending a lot of time going and tracking through the other relationships of the letter writer's life. Um, despite the fact that they ultimately come to the conclusion of I needed to work on myself and I needed to look inward. And, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, like, uh, how much of that work they've done and whether they're still keeping the focus on themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, I I also noticed that phrase. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I noticed about this letter was the uh, presence of several expressions that I have heard frequently from sort of like pop psychology talk or even reality show scripts. And one of the things that I was sort of curious about was it feels like this letter writer has a lot of questions and uncertainty, especially in the light of their various diagnoses. And it almost felt like they were using a couple of commonly heard phrases not necessarily because that was the best descriptor of their concerns in the moment, so much as just sort of a hope that this common script would guide them onto a sort of legible path, which I think is not uncommon um, for, for people in that kind of context of like, does this script work for me? Does this make sense when I try to apply it to my life? So, you know, the sort of questions of like, how can I be a good partner if I can't take care of myself? Um letting people in that 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 sort of struck me as like not like inauthentic by any means so much as moments where it seemed like the letter writer wasn't sure and was sort of borrowing a common phrase to see if that would be useful or a, a helpful guidepost so i suppose what i want to start with is by saying it seems to me that this letter writer is in a fairly good position for trying something new in as much as they have some sense of what they don't want, some sense of what some of their patterns are, some questions maybe around, uh, do I think I want the things that I've been pursuing or do I think that I'm doing them to avoid something else? Um, and and where do I go from there? They don't seem like panicked. They don't seem self-loathing. And, and I think all of that is a good place to begin. So, you know, letter writer, you say that you fell into the sort of five relationships that you've been in. And you say that you're not really sure if you're working on yourself because that's something you really, really want, or you're working on yourself because it's easier or helps you avoid pain or distress. And so the sort of question that you're now faced with is, well, how else will I figure out what I want? And I think that that's often a place where I recommend people try writing things down. Um, not because I think it will necessarily lead to an immediate epiphany, but because sometimes if you don't immediately know what you want, it helps by beginning to rule things out so that you can get closer and closer to, okay, by process of elimination, maybe I have a better sense of what I do want. So it sounds like you don't want to fall into other relationships that you just sort of drop into because somebody else wants you to. You know, maybe it would be useful to kind of write down, if I envision myself never dating again um, and instead prioritizing other types of relationships. Does that sound sad to me? Does that sound peaceful to me? Does that sound neutral? Does that sound interesting? Um, if I had lots of short-term relationships, how does that sound? If I had, you know, kind of serial monogamous relationships, how does that sound? Polyamory, how does that sound? Um, maybe just try to like describe a couple of different possible phases as well as what would the sort of worst case version of that look like? What would sort of the best case version of that look like? You don't have to, obviously, if it sounds like homework or really dull, but I think especially when you're in that position of, gosh, I just don't know, then that can be useful work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would you also say that they're kind of in a position to go ahead and start actively dating? Because I get the sense that they could. Mm -hmm. You know, even if they're not looking specifically for 
love or for anything. I mean, they could be looking for connection and just start going out and meeting people. It feels like they're ready for it. Certainly, I think they can. I think obviously the sort of question here is, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about being hurt, um, especially because a couple of my relationships ended pretty badly. Um, and I'm also worried because I know I have a history of adapting to what my partners want. And so I think that was part of why I was hoping that I could encourage the letter writer to at least start with some written attempts to get a little bit more clarity about like what they would like most to avoid or what they would like most to pursue so that they can try to um, get a stronger picture of what they want so that they don't have to adapt to potential partners in the absence of self-knowledge. Um, and it's not as if self-knowledge like cures all your problems um, yeah. or prevents you from adapting to a partner. But if the fear is, I'll just, you know, look for somebody who's kind of interested in me and then I'll just go along with what they want until things fall apart. If that's something that you're worried about, it can really help to think in advance. Well, what kind of dates do I like? What kind of relationships do I like? And again, some of this will be a little abstract or theoretical since you haven't been in a romantic relationship for a while. But that's, you know, that's okay. I, I would also say letter writer don't be too hard on yourself. It sounds like the last time you were dating people was in maybe your early and mid-20s. Lots of relationships don't end beautifully in your early to mid-20s. So I don't want you to feel either like that was solely because uh, I hadn't yet received a diagnosis or that was an indicator that I did something really wrong. Sometimes that's just what being in your 20s is like for everybody. Um, and so, you know, you had one relationship where you parted on good terms. That's great. A couple of bad breakups, that's not unheard of. So I, I just, I, I agree that like some pain is unavoidable if you're going to try to date. But I also really understand, you know, that hope of, I would like to avoid lots and lots of very painful breakups if possible. I would like to have ideally relationships that are successful, but like given that most aren't, I would like to at least have like okay breakups, which I think again is like a good goal. You can't guarantee it, but it's it's possible to sort of pursue. I, I guess too, yeah, the reason I think I'm so focused on these past relationships is like there's this desire on the part of the letter writer to sort of qualify why they might have ended badly or like, I think we were only in love because we took drugs together. And, you know, again, I can understand that in the sense of I don't want my next partner to be someone I don't really like. I just do a lot of drugs with. But also on the other hand, like, I, I don't want you to feel like you have to explain away why you liked those people for a while and then didn't or why you loved them and then it didn't work out. Like, not to say drugs are as legitimate a form of finding love as anything else, but also they kind of are. I mean, like, you know, pretty relatable to be in your 20s and go on mutual drug trips and have a fling off of it or have a relationship yeah. off of it, even legitimate relationships. Yeah. It, like it's, it's totally fine to say like, I now understand that relationship differently and I don't want to do drugs every week with someone I'm dating to cover up for the fact that we actually don't have much in common. But also, you know, if you are spending a lot of time trying to explain away each past relationship, I would encourage you to do a different kind of emotional work. Um, you know, you do say that you're worried it's become a mantra so you never let anyone in again. But I also, you know, you say you have a lot of close friends. And so, again, not to like redirect you from your desire to date more, which I think is reasonable. But I also don't think that's useful language of like, oh, because I haven't dated in, you know, 10 years, I don't let people in. Um, you you do let people in. You're You're considering whether or not you would like to take a new kind of risk that you've avoided for a while. But it's really not an either or all or nothing situation where like either your options are let people in and date or never let anyone in and be, you know, an island. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you really nailed it. Like I was just focusing on the like, yeah, you want to date? 
go go ahead go date <laughs> trial and error i mean you're that's absolutely too, like, right yeah i think all of these things are useful but i also think like you can do all of these like you can think all of these things you can pursue all these different emotional processes you can write stuff down and at the same time you can also just say like I'm going to be open to going on a date this year, or I'm going to be open to asking two people out this month. And my goal is going to be have a first date where I pay attention to how I feel and I don't automatically plan a second date until I've had at least a day or two to go be by myself and reflect on how it went and whether or not I had a good time or whether or not I just wanted to make the other person I was on a date with happy. I think that would probably be my next piece of advice is if you have a hard time checking in with yourself and figuring out what you want in a vacuum. Don't agree to a next date when you're still on your first date and uh, make sure you set aside some time when that person's not in front of you and you don't think like, oh, I want to make you happy because that's polite Um, so that you can really think like, did I have a great time and I'd love to see them again? Did I have an okay time but don't care if I see them again? Did I have a good time but then this one moment was really weird and I'm not sure how I feel so that you can like ask your friends for advice or think through your own reactions and responses. Like there's a lot of value in going on multiple first dates to try to collect more experience and then to check in with yourself afterwards. So you get a better sense of what works for you um, rather than think of, I have to go find my next serious partner. So whatever my next first date is, I need to make it work. Like the point of a first date is to figure out how you're feeling and whether or not you might like to see somebody else again, not to, like get a get a good grade on your date um, or be the most charming version of what you think the other person wants. I might be reading a little bit of my own 20s into that one. <laughs> I was feeling my own 20s in that answer. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's what was that like, that classic tweet that was like, I believe that if I do or say the right things, I will get a good grade in therapy, a thing that is both possible, achieve, and reasonable to want. <laughs> um, and like, I, I certainly think that there are ways that people can bring that approach to first dates of just like, I've agreed to go on a date with someone. They have not actively tried to kill me, which means they're a good person. And that means my job is to, on some level, be charming to them and make them pleased with me so that they like me. And then you wake up and like a year later, you're like, I hate my boyfriend. How did this happen? And I want to spare people from that process whenever possible. So yeah, you know, I I think All of that doesn't quite answer that last question, which is how do I know I'm not just making up excuses to never be hurt by love again? Do you want to like spend any time considering the possibility that this letter writer maybe doesn't want to date and is only thinking that they ought to because they feel that they should? Did that seem present to you? Uh, See, that's not immediately what came to mind. But actually, now that you posit it, you're not wrong. I mean, there's something about this letter that feels a little bit like... They've watched Sex and the City quite a lot, so they kind of know how the lingo goes and what one is supposed to want and not necessarily what the letter writer maybe actually personally really feels. And of course, you can never figure out what you feel in a vacuum, right? Like there's always going to be some influence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but it's been 10 years and it sounds like they're ready to get back out again. And it sounds like, I think they want to. I I think it's certainly a strong possibility. Like I didn't feel an absolute slam dunk, but neither did I read this and think you definitely don't seem like you want to. So I suppose it was just worth raising the possibility that if letter writer, you do a lot of introspection and you say, actually, 
dating kind of sounds like more of a hassle and there's some things about it that I might like, but I actually am not that afraid of being hurt and more just don't think I enjoy it as much as I would potentially be annoyed or suffer from it. So that would be useful information too. And I just want to stress too, I, I, I thought that there was a possibility that some of that language was serving as a script or a placeholder. I don't at all mean to suggest that it seemed like the letter writer was behaving in like an inauthentic way or didn't really feel any of these things. So just to stress letter writer. No, I, I not don't, at all. Yeah. I, I'm, if that if you hear that and you're like, nope, that's not true. I was just speaking a little formally. Um, dismiss that part of my answer completely. Um, so I guess the the my final answer to that last question, how do I know I'm not just making up excuses? You know, the cheap answer is you kind of never really know fully, but um, you can at least try to take stock of your feelings uh, extensively. You can try to write things down and check back in in a few days and see if they still ring true. You can ask close friends for advice. You can think about when I envision different scenarios where I'm either in a romantic relationship or not in one or looking for one actively or being open to one more passively. You know, what do those scenarios bring up for me emotionally? Um, that will at least make you feel like, well, I can't ever know this perfectly, but I've at least, you know, investigated my own feelings here. Um, and, and I'm not just, you know, taking the first excuse at face value. And then of course, beyond that, you're, all you're able to do then is say like, I think I'll be able to bring a pretty good version of myself on a first date. You can't control for whether other people will also do the same. So even that is not itself a guarantee that you'll never have a bad breakup again. Although I sure hope that if you decide to start dating and you find people that you like dating, that they are the kind of people who are fun to break up with. <laughs> That's always like a weird part of dating, right? It's like, oh, are you going to be fun to break up? Like, are you going to be okay to like... It's always a consideration. <laughs> yeah, like never marry someone you wouldn't want to divorce. Like, it's such a weird <laughs> thing to look for in, a, some, in someone you want to not break up with. It's just making sure that... Uh, that you can get out the back door one way or the other. The fire escape of a relationship. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I've been feverish and watching like marathons of Law and Order lately. So the only thing I can think of right now is that last night I watched Steve from Sex and the City admit to cutting the legs off of a bunch of women. So that's like what's on my mind in terms of romance. It's just like, man, Steve from Law and Order. <laughs> Not Steve from Law and Order. Steve from Sex and the City turned out to be a, an ex guy. God, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm coming back from COVID, all right? I'm doing my best. I'm going to read our next letter and stop whatever this is. The subject is, rather charmingly, I thought, by biological parents, because it's bye-bye and biological. I didn't come up with that. That was them. I'm going to switch into a more serious mode because it's a more serious question. I'm an adult survivor of childhood sexual assault by my now deceased grandfather. After a nervous breakdown last year and with multiple past attempts at disclosing, I told my historically abusive and neglectful parents about this abuse. They were initially supportive, but when I wanted to tell other people in our family in case they had also been affected, my parents backflipped. My mom's response became, I believe that you believe something happened. My dad denied that anything had ever happened, but that if it had, it wasn't their fault and to, quote, move on. I'm estranged from them and have asked them not to contact me, which they do anyways. My question is around boundaries, extended family and siblings and family events. I've decided not to disclose further. However, over time, family members will likely have questions and may take my parents' side. 
waiting for those questions to come up feels passive and also lets my parents control the narrative, which I know they'll try to do anyways. But at the same time, I don't know what to proactively say to others to maintain family connections. The best I can come up with is, I'm not in touch with mom and dad anymore. They let me down over something important and sensitive, but I'm glad that our sibling or extended family relationship is separate to that. I also don't know how to handle the prospect of attending family funerals where they could potentially try to hug me or force me into skin-crawling, shared grief conversations in front of others. Mm. This one was, you know, I just, I, I really feel for this letter writer, and this is such a challenging position. I just mostly want to start with, I'm really sorry, letter writer, and I'm really glad that you're not in contact with your parents. I'm sorry that they continue to try to contact you, and I hope you have a robust filtering system in place so that you don't have to see every time they try to call or email or send you physical mail or whatever it is that they do when they try to get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you have many, many people who are surrounding you with as much support as you could possibly take. Um, And I'm sorry that you're not finding it in your family. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you want to start with this one? Is there anything that you feel like is, you know, sort of a first order question or something that you want to make sure we address uh, before we get to the rest of it? Yeah. Um, Because this is a really hard question. Um, The decision to disclose or not to disclose, I think, is kind of the first thing that bubbles up to the surface. Um, Because you expressed that you want to tell people and initially wanted to tell people before your parents kind of got involved and had this bad reaction. So my first question to them would be, do you still feel that way? Do you still not want to disclose or do you, are you looking for ways to do that? Yeah, I I think that's useful. It seems like this letter writer has a pretty clear eyed perspective on the various advantages and disadvantages. Um, and I, like, you know, letter writer, like I share your sense of the advantages and disadvantages. Like, I I think you, you kind of nailed it. Like it is difficult waiting for the questions to come up, you know, does run the risk of giving your parents more room to control the narrative. But as you acknowledge, like they're going to try to do that anyways. So all that seemed, um, you know, I, I didn't have much to add there. Um, I suppose if I could have wanted anything else from this letter, it would be some sense of how close your relationship with your siblings and extended family have been over the years. You know, if there's anybody who you felt like has been especially sympathetic or has stood up for you in a kind of um, notable way, uh, if there's anybody that you feel closer with than others, that might be, uh, you know, somebody to either keep in the back of your head as sort of your, your first port of call. But then that's also like, to me, these these are sort of two separate questions. Like part of you is thinking about the possibility of either maybe at some point in the future disclosing or simply acknowledging it if they ask you about it in the interest of maintaining a separate relationship, possibly asking for some sort of support, um, maintaining a tie. And then the other question is part of me wants to bring this up because I want to know if somebody else was abused by him and possibly also wants to disclose. And those do seem to me like those are really separate desires um, that might merit really separate actions. So I think it's really useful to think about what do I want from which people and what am I open to? Because of course, also like it's not as if you'll necessarily have a go-to list of likeliest candidates at the back of your head of who you think might have been abused. You know, you can maybe like based on age and 
proximity, come up with a, a group of people that you think are likelier um, in that camp. But you certainly can't, I think, like with perfect clarity, guess who it would be. So there's that level of difficulty. But then also, yeah, asking somebody for support versus asking someone, if I share this with you and you feel so moved, you know, feel free to share this back with me, that those are so different that I think they're worth addressing separately. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, absolutely. In both cases, you can kind of take steps towards whatever you want to do here too, right? I mean, finding the first person who you feel like is the safest person that you can disclose to and will have the best reaction is a good first step versus, you know, how do I tell my grandmother that I don't, you know, only call on her birthday? And I mean, then we have the question of of how to handle family gatherings, right? Because mm-hmm. that's an entirely other question compared to these other ones. And I'm assuming from the way that the letter was worded that they're worried about their parents in particular being in the same gathering, right? Yeah, that's maybe the most like concrete thing we can start with. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that feels like grounding. Um, yeah. I think when it comes to like funerals, you have a couple of options, right? One of them is not to go. And I, I merely mention that as an option. As you are well aware, letter writer, that is the most drastic option um, that can often itself lead to other painful or complicated conversations or you know, make it difficult to maintain those separate relationships that do sound important to you. So that one is not without its drawbacks, but that is one option. If you're just like, if I was at a family funeral and they tried to touch me, I would lose it. I couldn't handle it. Um, I would not be okay. Then that might lead you to decide I don't go. Another possibility, um, it's not quite like weddings where it's traditional to bring a date, but I also have been to a family funeral where I did bring my partner. So if you have a partner or a close friend and you believe that it would be okay uh, to bring somebody with you, you could ask someone who's not within your family but is close to you and say like, are you up for being on sort of like handler slash bodyguard duty where you go with me, you help me out. If it looks like my parents are coming to approach me, you act as a buffer, not like start jostling people or like pushing them away, but making it clear that like hugging's not on the table or um, like, you know, quietly being like, you need to not try to talk to the letter writer right now. Or potentially, if you do eventually find another relative who is sympathetic and useful to you in that way, you could go as a, a, a team sort of looking out for one another in that way. Those would be some possibilities. Hopefully there's no funeral that's like in the next two weeks, but those would be, I think, my only options. I wouldn't advise like trying to get in touch with your parents in advance of those funerals and asking them not to touch you just because I think based on how badly attempts at, at you know boundary setting or truth-telling has gone in the past that that would not serve you well. Yeah. And you have other things in your arsenal as well. I mean, you are always allowed to turn around and walk away in any situation that you find yourself in. So if your parents approach you, if you're in a group talking to a family member and your parents want to insert themselves in, you can turn around and walk away. I mean, you have this built-in sort of line that you have that is really, really good for explaining it later. But at the same time, 
I think it's very, very reasonable to just get yourself out of any situation where you don't feel comfortable and need to get out. I'd also encourage if you're going to any of these gatherings, you can go in with a plan as well. Like if it's a funeral, you want to go in for the ceremony and say, I'm so sorry to whoever is grieving, and then you can leave. Or you just want to be able to stay there for an hour and, you know, find ways to make sure that you can just stay there for an hour so that you make an appearance so that you can talk to your family and then just have a built-in excuse that you already made up before you ever even got there and then just get out. Yeah, having an exit strategy is great. And I'm also aware, you know, we're kind of dancing around like, the other difficult truth, which is, you know, letter writer, it sounds like you have pretty clear and reasonable expectations on a lot of fronts. So I don't at all mean to suggest that you have like naive expectations. Um, I just want to say, you know, one thing that is also true is that if you have, you know, I can go to some family events, but I have an exit strategy or I need to like take a, a buddy with me. If, if part of you has been sort of hoping or envisioning, I'll be able to have like a pretty great relationship with my other relatives that involves going to lots of family events and no contact with my abusive parents and not have to discuss that very much with my other relatives. I think that's pretty rare and I think that's pretty difficult. So I want to try to like make it clear that what I'm advising would result in like an ability to occasionally attend a family event relatively briefly um, and potentially salvage a couple of other relationships over time. But I, I, my outlook here, my expectation here would not be, hey, I can promise you that if you do that, you're going to get to keep great relationships with your siblings and your cousins, your aunts and uncles, and it won't get entangled with the stuff with your parents or your grandfather because unfortunately that that would require the willing participation of each of these other relatives to say, yes, I will not try to pry or ask questions or try to guilt you into talking to your parents. And that just, that's rare. Again, not impossible, not not totally out of the, the realm of possibility, but, um, you know, it's also important to have a game plan for if people do ask the questions, under what circumstances am I prepared to answer them? Do I feel comfortable saying, I can't answer all this right now, but let me give this a little thought and call you tomorrow? Do you have a sense of if a relative were really pushing me um, or trying to guilt me into uh, talking to my parents or apologizing for something I didn't do? Um, how would I grieve that? How would I get space and distance? And how would I let go of that relationship? Like, I, I really want to make sure that you're also getting outside support in case you do end up losing your whole family. And, you know, this is always the like womp womp part of any letter I get about family estrangement. And I, I do really want to stress, like, not everyone's family estrangement goes like-minded, but I lost my whole family. I lost everybody. Uh, I lost all my family friends. Like, people that I would have really thought we would at least have a conversation, we never had a conversation, you know? Like, I reached out. I said, here's the situation. I realized this might be really difficult for you. I, I totally get that. I'm not asking anything of you. I would love to hear from you, but here's what I'm doing. I didn't hear back from anyone. Not my grandparents. Not my cousins, not my aunts, not my uncles. I just have one aunt. I don't know why I said that. Uh, not family friends I'd known for decades. Nobody. I got nobody. And that was, you know, in some ways surprising. I, I think probably it, it shouldn't have been. But, you know, everybody picked the people who had chosen to uh, perpetuate the secret of, uh, you know, the, the pedophile cabal. 
uh, and that was awful and it was devastating. And that included people that I thought I was really close with and who really loved me and who would have at the very least been willing to talk to me about it. Um, I didn't get anybody and I, and that might happen to you too. And I would hate it if that happens, but I just want to like say that might be the outcome. You might do everything as well as you can and speak as calmly and in, in, in due time as you, as you can try to, um, uh, and wait to have sensitive conversations one-on-one with people you sort of pre-screened for at least some shared trust. And it might still all go everybody, whether explicitly or simply by default, picks your parents and your grandfather. And that might happen. And I'm really, really sorry if it does. I just want you to know that if that does happen, it's not necessarily because you went about it in the wrong way or you don't deserve that support and care. You do. You just might have to end up getting it from other people. You might have to find your own family, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks. I hope that's not the thing that happens. I hope you get, you know, relatives who hear, I'm not in touch with mom and dad anymore. It is sensitive. I'm not ready to discuss it right now, but I'm not asking you to drop them. I'm just asking you to respect that distance between us. I hope you get multiple people who hear that and say, okay, thank you for letting me know, and then really back that up with their actions and really don't then, you know, six days or six weeks or six months later say, sure, 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 but come on, you got to talk to your mom. She's your mom. I I hope they don't do that. Statistically, they probably will. They probably will, and I'm sorry, but um, none of that means, by the way, that you have to disclose throughout the, like if you try the stuff that you've laid out here in this letter and it doesn't go well, that does not mean then like as a Hail Mary, you have to disclose if you don't feel safe or comfortable in so doing. You might simply ask them to respect that. And I don't know to what extent any of your other relatives or siblings might already know something about your parents' abusiveness. I don't really know the details and I don't think that's necessary here, but I really, really hope that you get back up. But usually that doesn't happen in the family unit. I'm sorry. That's so depressing. Um, no, I wish it sad. weren't that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, you know, I was really, I was really surprised. I really thought I was, I like, I kept like going through like a mental Rolodex, like when it all happened of like, and this person and this person, not even a, not even a call. I, I wrote you a, oh man. Wow. I really thought I would have gotten a call and I, I, I didn't. So, um, people, especially within family units, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, they they side with the grandpa, the father, uh, whoever's kind of been in charge for a while. That's who they pick. I'm sorry. I hope you have amazing people in your life. I'm so grateful and glad that you don't talk to your parents. That sounds wonderful and restful, even though it's probably also painful and sad. But the pain and the sadness was already there, whether you spoke to them or not. And I hope you have a million people in your corner and that you find great, great, fantastic other people that you meet at parties and out in the world and through friends and through partners and lovers um, who bring deep, deep uh, shared uh, trust, support, um, love, admiration, and um, kindness into your life. You know what I think? I think you should tell me about Jane Fonda because this has been sad, and I want to hear what's <laughs> what are the five acts of Jane Fonda? What's that? What's that like? Oh my god! Hey, yeah, the five acts of Jane Fonda. That documentary that I worked on. Well, it was interesting because we 
In talking to Jane about her own life, one of the things that she said of herself is that uh, she's defined her life so often or she's she's molded her life around the relationships that she's had with men. And that's kind of a part of her story. I mean, in all cases, she was already kind of going in a direction and then she just found like the perfect guy who kind of helped her along her journey. But the funny thing is she herself just divides it into, I had my father, I had my first husband, I had my second husband, I had my third husband, and then no more. And then I was done with men. So the five acts of Jane Fonda are... So the the fifth act is just Jane? It's just Jane. I like that. That sounds, I know. That sounds wonderful. We got some criticism at the time because there, people were like, well, why, why are you defining this amazing woman by the men that she's been with? And we we're like, well, we agree. <laughs> There's a point. I also love the idea of like, I agree that she's, you know, amazing. I, I have to record what she said. You know, <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry that up. <laughs> you found Jane Fonda's description of her own like emotional trajectory over the course of her life uh, insufficiently on board with your own feminist project. But like, it's a documentary <laughs> about what Jane thinks about Jane. And she said yeah. what she said. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's like 100% such a feminist icon, but she wouldn't have counted herself as a feminist icon for most of her life, interestingly enough. Yeah. And, you know, I think, gosh, I think a, a, a person reflecting on their their own, you know, remarkable and varied life and saying, you know, for the first, you know, 40 or 50 years of my life, I was really strongly influenced by the men in my life is not the same thing as saying I was merely a vessel handed from man to man. What a waste <laughs> my life has been. Like they're just they're they're thinking, you know, carefully and thoughtfully about, uh, you know, the the changes that they have seen in themselves. And that is itself, uh, you know, a useful uh, and a, a contemplative act that I think uh, gives the, the woman in question a great deal of, of agency. So I don't know. You're, to your imaginary interlocutors about that documentary, I say, I hope you reconsider your criticism on that front at least. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I think that the other thing I was really curious about, because I met you in a musical context, as you may remember. Um, yes. So, you know, I'm very interested in your your movie enthusiasm because we met through a mutual friend who is one of my movie friends. And uh, I I think a lot, especially about like old movie music, musicals. And I, I love that you describe yourself as a part-time song and dance man because I have often tried to think about like, what are the differences between like the hoofer, the song and dance man, the entertainer, the singer, the dancer? Like those are all five very different things to me. And I'm curious, like, what made you choose Song and Dance Man over, I don't know, Chanteuse or uh, <laughs> Terpsichorean or whatever else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are subtle differences between all of those. I was just having a conversation about who's the new, like, uh, who's the new Hugh Jackman, who I count as a general entertainer sure. more than... He, he wants to be a Song and Dance Man, that much is clear. Yeah. But he's a general entertainer. Um, so why would I describe myself as a song and dance man? Um, the easy answer is because I can't act very well. <laughs> I can't sing or can't dance that well either, but I like to do those things a lot more. So I tend to break out into song 
uh, and dance around my apartment on a pretty regular basis. So I feel like I've earned the moniker of Sung Dance Man. I think that's fair. I also, there's something that I always associated, obviously, with like the early 20th century sort of like WPA, like public works thing of just like, I'm going to put on a show for the people. Um, like I, like I, I, I think song and dance man, I think of like Jimmy Durante singing, it's got to come from the heart. Like it's a question, like you can be a talented song and dance man. You can be an untalented song and dance man. There has to be a certain level of showmanship. Like you can't be a total greenhorn just stumbling onto the stage, but you could be in, in a very wide range of potential talent, but you got heart and, and you got a little you got a little bit of rough edges, like 1930s movies about Brooklyn rough edges, not like rough, rough edges, but like, you know, just just a little bit of that Jimmy Durante uh, anti-polish. <laughs> um, I think about these things a lot. But like, that's why I think like fundamentally Channing Tatum is a song and dance man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is making me question, then how would you describe Fred Astaire, for instance? Because he's a little bit more than a song and dance man. He's got a lot more going on. Yeah, I mean, I think of him as as existing in two different modes, right? One of them is the hoofer, and that's like yeah. him in the bandwagon, I guess I'll have to change my plans, the elegant, shabby uh, resignation to uh, like entropy. Um, and that's him in his sort of like little tramp mode. Um, and then the mm-hmm. other mode is the entertainer. And that's why, like, you know, his his role, like, uh, emceeing the That's Entertainment series, um, you know, the entertainer is a little bit more like, you know, I'm on this stage until the Titanic goes all the way down, and I'm going to give you folks a show just as I promised I would. And yes, it'll end in the icy waters of the Atlantic, but damn it, I'm an entertainer. <laughs> Um, and so like, depending on, you know, one is slightly more elegant and romantic and the other is romantic from a different sort of lens. Um, and there's sort of two scales in upper and lower class. And that's part of why I always find, you know, like, uh, Roberta hilarious, like any movie where he has to be like a down on his luck guy. <laughs> Cause he just goes so wide with down on his luckiness. Like he might as well just be wearing fingerless gloves and like a busted <laughs> top hat. He can't really pull yeah, it off. No, exactly. Um, he's a lot more at home in the full tux and the top hat. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, he's just like, he's all class. And then sometimes he has to pretend he lives in a garbage <laughs> can, which is one of the reasons that I love movies in the thirties because, you know, uh, the depression made for some fascinating, uh, attempts to cobble things oh, yeah. together. Uh, but yeah, I would say part hoofer, part entertainer, all dancer. That's uh, that's Fred Astaire. Whereas you know somebody like um, Gene Kelly is more of a like you know shit eating, grinning Irishman, <laughs> um, which does happen to include dancing. Um, but the dancing is simply an outpouring of the physical expression of joy uh, that is is native to to the soil from which he sprang. Um, which is a, a different way into uh, the dancing milieu. Um, I've been I've been feverish and, and listening to Steve Allen for a long time. I really don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I love it. This has been great. <laughs> who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? Like old school song and dance person? I mean, I'll be honest. Like I just adore Fred Astaire. That's just why I brought him up. It's just. It, you can't get better. I love a little, I love a guy who's just kind of got a funny face, but he's incredibly talented. Oh, face like a thumb. Exactly. Just a thumb someone drew a face on. I love him so much. He's my exactly. boyfriend. Um, yeah. No, and just like he could always, I loved too, because, you know, he wasn't like primarily a singer by any means, 
But he had such a lovely, wistful, reedy, resigned quality. Like when I think of him singing Never Gonna Dance, he's always shooting his cuffs and be like, ah, well, that's everything. What can you do? Like it always feels like in those little dance moves, especially when he shoots his cuffs, like he's just gotten the order to be shot at dawn. And he's just like, ah, well, at least I'll do it with style. So he's just like, never gonna dance. And he's got that little throb in his voice. And it's just like, I, I, it kills me every time. Absolutely. I mean, especially when you kind of put it with these ideas about like masculinity back then. I love looking at Fred Astaire movies from that lens because it's just like, he's not a very masculine man, not at all. And a time when that was like, no. you know, absolutely idolized. All of the men look like boxes anyway. And here's this kind of weedy guy just but, I mean, that's, that's part of what I love about the 30s, too, is like there's so many different bizarre forms of masculinity that did not survive the 20th century and that we get to see. So like they've always got like Edward Everett Horton there butching him up. And it's just like, who do you call when you need to make Fred Astaire look like a he-man? And Edward Everett Horton answers the call every time. And you're just like, wow, Fred really is kind of butch, huh? <laughs> like it works. Absolutely. I love it. So from now on, the show is just going to be interviewing people about their ailments and 1930s actors. So I have successfully completed my transition into a 75-year-old man, which is great. Thank you so much for uh, leading me to the new format of the program. <laughs> Happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And I hope that eventually when we are both in the same city again and uh, hopefully um, germ-free or, you know, sufficiently germ-free, uh, I can see you in person again. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, you're allowed to fly again. I mean, I'm not going anywhere for the foreseeable, but, you know, eventually I'll I'll do more than just take a small walk every day. The point is that you have the option, <laughs> that you have the exit route. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Marissa, thank you again so much for, for joining us. Please pass on my regards to your close personal friend, Jane Fonda, um, and talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. The most important thing to me, I think, is that you've barely been sleeping for a few weeks. So I would just say, mention that to your doctor. Your partner probably has already noticed, but mention that to your partner as well. Because not sleeping makes it so much more difficult to regulate your emotions. When I don't sleep well, I will cry about anything. I will freak out way more easily. I get irritated more easily. Like, that really exacerbates any emotional distress. So... Tell a lot of people you're having trouble sleeping. 
that's not necessarily going to fix it, but it'll make you feel less alone. And maybe a lot of them will give you advice and some of it will be dumb and won't help at all. And some of it you'll be like, all right, for the next couple of days, I'm going to like drink half the caffeine I usually do, take a long walk in the morning. So I get the like early sun exposure that helps remind my body like when to wake and when to sleep and like keep your phone out of your bedroom. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.